0: the pleasure i get from seeing the effect of the service i provide keeping the sight of the patients restoring their sight and the happiness on the big smile on their face is a reward that can't be it's priceless reward really a priceless reward and that's what makes me love every day i do my job
1: Hello there, friends. Welcome back to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. This is a space where we like to talk about health and well-being, generally every Monday and Thursday. If you're new, welcome. If you're coming back, thank you for your continued support. 330 plus episodes in the Happy Habit Archive. Do check them out. Lots of great discussions and topics and interviews in there. And if you're enjoying listening to the episodes in this series, please like, subscribe, share, and do leave the podcast a positive review. You wouldn't believe how much that helps spread the message of this podcast. So if you do anything today, please, at the very least, do that. And I will be immensely grateful. Now, today's guest is Dr. Fatima Hamrush. She is an ophthalmologist. In this episode, we learn about common eye conditions, such as dry eye. We hear about risk factors for glaucoma and how to manage that condition. Expect to learn about how best to optimize your eye care, including the benefits of good nutrition and supplementation that support eye health. Well, let me welcome you, Dr Hamrush, to the Happy Habit podcast. We like to talk about health and well-being here. And as I said uh, at the outset, uh, I believe eye health and eye care is overlooked by many people. And uh, that is until people suffer from a condition of some sort. If we can start out by first giving people an idea as to the general anatomy of the eye itself. So as we know exactly what we're talking about.
0: Thank you, Matthew, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to the audience. Yeah, it's a good start to start with the anatomy. Basically, and every part of the eye matters while doing the examination. Um, I always tell my trainee, start from the tip of the lashes and go deeper. So basically uh, the lids, of course, there's a lot of pathology that can arise in the lids. There's uh, the meibomian gland, where there's meibomian gland dysfunction. We'll talk about it as we go, but basically the lids Mm -hmm. and uh, the conjunctiva, the cornea, The anterior chamber, iris, lens, and vitreous, then the retina and the layers of the retina, optic nerve, visual uh, uh, radiation up to the visual cortex at the back of the uh, head. So it's, it's quite all linked together, yeah.
1: So there are an awful lot of conditions that people and abnormalities that people can suffer from because of the complexity of the eye, because you've listed off so many different areas of the anatomy of the eye there. So what are the the main conditions and main abnormalities that people would present to any ophthalmologist with?
0: Yeah, well, there uh, is a a funny joke used to uh, hear from one of uh, my Professors, when I was a trainee, says his grandchild used to say to him, you're doing eyes on the eyes. What else? And-,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that actually sums it all up. There's so many subspecialties in eyes. So when you are an eye specialist, you, you can't do anything uh, uh, So corneals. There's so many pathology. There's a lot of pathology in the cornea that can arise. Needs needs a specialist. Can can be dealt by a general ophthalmologist as well. But when it gets more specialized, then it has to be dealt by a cornea specialist. Lids as well. Oculoplastics. There's plenty of problems that can arise in the lids that need surgery. Some other need medical care. Then in the. Uh, Sclera, I didn't mention when I mentioned the anatomy, the sclera is is, the, is actually what keeps the eye in the spherical, it's the layer of, of the eye that keeps it in a spherical shape uh, along with the vitreous pressure inside and the eye pressure. So there is the iris problems, anterior chamber problems like uveitis, uh, inflammation of the cornea, and secondary to, co- to many reasons, viral, bacterial, contact lens related, UVitis uveitis, as well as an inflammation of the blue of the eye, can be due to uh, systemic diseases of, or local diseases. Um, again, a trauma to the eye can lead to bleeding in the anterior chamber, can lead to uh, later pressure development, which is a glaucoma. Glaucoma is a pressure in the eye, but that's a, a very vast subject that I can go through later also then the lens can get cataract needs to be uh, operated of course for cataract uh, some problems are reversible and some damage that if it happens is irreversible so uh, for example cataract is reversible glaucoma damage is irreversible that's that's the value of having to to find out people with glaucoma early before the damage happens uh, again we the, now going deeper into the eye the Retinal detachment can happen that needs surgical intervention before it's too late and before fibrosis sets in, fibrosis of the retina. Diabetic eye disease is very important. Screening for diabetic eye disease is vital to prevent permanent visual loss. Age-related macular degeneration monitoring for that. There are two types: there is dry and there is wet age-related macular degeneration. There are medications, food supplements, really like carotenoids and all that can delay the progression of agitated macular degeneration is being found to be very beneficial. And then we go to the nerve to the eye, where lots of problems can arise in the nerve to the eye, depending on the pathology involved, including systemic diseases, neurological diseases, brain tumors, and back to the optic radiation where any affection or when I say optic radiation I mean by the the connections between the brain and the visual cortex and where you can localize the lesion where it is depending on the symptoms and the signs that present to you with, by the patient. And it's, it's really, it's all anatomy. If you know your anatomy, you can localize the lesion wherever you are looking. Even without even examining, you can guess it first and then you say, you look it up and yeah, it's great. That's what, it's, what it is. I can help this person with this diagnosis and start the treatment. Of course, always prevention is better than cure and that happens in cases where you can screen patients, identify them before the damage happens.
1: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned screening because um, I know one of your subspecialties is glaucoma and a few years ago I was diagnosed uh, by an eye specialist with a condition called pigment displacement syndrome and uh, apparently the that's a risk factor for developing glaucoma so every year now I have to have a peripheral vision test in order just to, to make sure that my vision hasn't changed um, glaucoma would historically have been associated with let's say sub-Saharan Africa and uh, the third world but we're seeing more and more of it now in the first world can you tell us exactly what glaucoma is. You, you mentioned it was uh, in part um, connected to an increase in, in pressure in the eye itself. Can you, t- can you talk to us about glaucoma?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually in general, people think glaucoma is high pressure in the eyes. It doesn't have to be high pressure in the eye. Your pressure can be normal. While if I have the same pressure as you have, I may have glaucoma. So this, the diagnosis of glaucoma is not made only on or based only on pressure. Of course, if the pressure is too high, over 25 and more, we're talking 25 millimeter mercury, there's a special machine that can measure the pressure in the eyes. Uh, If pressure is high, or let's say over 30, yes, you're sure it's glaucoma, but then you need to find out what type of glaucoma is that. There are many types of glaucoma. So in, in proper definition, in my opinion, of glaucoma is a high pressure that for that particular individual, that causes is enough to cause damage to the eye or the pressure that's enough to cause damage to the optic nerve. Not the eye, sorry. And the damage that's caused to the optic nerve is gradual over the years. So it's a combination of when you want to examine a patient for a glaucoma, Now you mentioned, you have pigment dispersion syndrome, okay? Pigment dispersion syndrome can be associated with glaucoma but may not be. If it's syndrome, there is glaucoma, but pigment dispersion glaucoma is the glaucoma. But syndrome is just um, the uh, the deposition of pigment in the anvil that can block the drainage channels that then increases the pressure in the eye. But not everyone with pigment dispersion syndrome would have glaucoma. So how to find out a person with a certain pressure, let's say high pressure, if they are, especially the ones who are borderline, When we see sometimes patients in the region of 22 pressure, which is the higher normal after 24, you you can't say this is glaucoma. It can be ocular hypertension. You need to combine it with the visual fields for glaucoma, which have specific pattern uh, of damage that shows damage of the optic nerve reflects in the visual field. And then the OCT, which shows you the layers of the retina, including the optic disc cupping, very clear, also shows the nerve fiber layer if it's thinning down and the combination of all that, along with is there, of course, that's enough to diagnose glaucoma, but if say somebody has no damage, but you think the pressure is is normal, let's say normal in general population, the normal pressure varies from from actually from 10 to or 8 to 24. That's normal, but some people with normal pressure glaucoma, fourteen. Pressure is only fourteen, but still they have glaucoma because they have the damage that I was talking about to the optic nerve, to the visual field, and the OCT. We diagnose it as glaucoma, even if the pressure is normal, normal for the most of the population. And some others have a pressure of twenty-four and have no damage. We call them ocular hypertension. So pressure is high, but no glaucoma. Now, if there is a family history of glaucoma, a strong family history, that adds to the criteria for diagnosing glaucoma. Higher chance. Uh, there, there are some studies, but I'm not, I'm not sure 100%, but the, definitely there is a higher chance with people with family history of glaucoma, whether it's 50% of re- related people or not, I'm not very sure of the number, but definitely a high number. The higher, the more there is a family history, the higher the chance of people developing glaucoma.
1: And then what about symptoms then? If, if Would somebody present with symptoms? I'm just thinking about people listening to this now, wondering whether they have risk factors for glaucoma.
0: Yeah, it's a very good question and thanks. Now, before I go to the symptoms, I'm going to give you a, a, just a summary of what types of glaucoma are there. We start from young age. There is congenital glaucoma. Children born with glaucoma, and that's a congenital defect in the structure of the eye. And it shows with a condition called boofthalamus, which basically the cornea looks way bigger than the normal average child, okay? And it's not impossible to diagnose very, I mean, with a pediatric ophthalmologist or some someone who is familiar with that can diagnose it. And then that needs a special treatments, not with the drops and laser surgical usually. That's in children. And then uh, juvenile glaucoma is more or less similar, but develops a little bit later, but less... There are the normal, the common type, which is chronic simple glaucoma, uh, which is the one I was talking about, the one with family history of glaucoma. That has no symptoms. Actually, we call it the silent thief of sight. If a patient comes to you with symptoms, it's too late.
1: Wow! Wow!
0: Yeah, yeah. The symptoms. Basically, what happens is our uh, our brains work in an amazing way. Basically, there are, there will be. In glaucoma, there is a reduction of the peripheral feed. But because it's peripheral, the brain patches those defects. So they don't see it. You see people with a defective visual feed and they drive. They don't know they have a problem. But when you examine them, some of them, I put them off driving. And it's a sad, it's a, one of the things I hate most to tell somebody you can't drive. And I can't bring this up. I can't bring it back story. Whatever you lost. Is not going to come back, but I can save from today, whatever you have. So the earlier it's diagnosed, the better and the better prognosis. I mean, that's for chronic simple type of glaucoma. And that's why I, I would actually always advise people with family history of glaucoma to be seen regularly. Or people with high risk of glaucoma, like in your case with pigment dispersion syndrome, you have to be seen regularly. Uh, people with suspicious optic discs, when we say suspicious optic discs, it keep cupping when there's no reason. Because in myopic patients, short-sighted people, you find cups are deep. But it's not associated with nerve fiber layer thinning, it's not associated with high pressure, there's no family history of glaucoma. They're low risk, but if you see a deep cup, even if in, in a, in a, a, a short sighted patient, but they have a feminist glaucoma, they don't show any signs of race pressure, you still have to keep an eye on them. Uh, if you see a key deep cupping in a long sighted patient, that's a high risk, Those long sighted people, they don't have a deep cup of the nerve to the eye. That's the chronic simple type, but there are other types, like for example, acute closure glaucoma. This, is, this comes with severe pain. And it's, it's it's a narrow angle. And it happens that when the pupil dilates, say if they are in a dark place or they get eye drops that dilate the pupil, the angle closes completely. Mm-hmm. And when uh, yeah, I say the angle, I'm talking at space between the cornea and the eyes at the at the periphery. So if the angle closes, the pressure can shoot up to 40 from seventeen, fourteen, 14. And that's seriously painful. And they need acute management. Also, sometimes patients with uveitis, inflammation of the blue of the eye, there will be a uh, deposition of material at the angle that blocks the angle and it causes pressure rise. They need to be treated with steroids. Patients with a blunt injury to the eye with blood in the eye in the, between the cornea and the iris can raise the pressure. That does recover easily with the short-term treatment with, uh, of steroids and pressure-lowering um, drops. Again, uh, in 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 blunt injury, I must mention, sometimes there's no pressure, or even if the pressure recovers after the acute stage, they may have angle recession, which means a, a complete uh, cut in the angle that causes fibrosis with time and causes pressure later in life. So they really definitely, all of them, need to be watched carefully. Uh, so there are many types of glaucoma, really. Uh, and one has to be, I, it's my, it's my field. I enjoy helping people and keeping their sight. And it's such a great pleasure to see someone coming early and following them over the years. Some of them I have now over 20 years or more, no change whatsoever in the fields and the pressures control. The treatment for that, of course, it differs. You may opt to drops. You may opt to selective laser trabeculoplasty. You may opt to surgery. But... uh, Ideally, uh, depends on your practice. Most, most, mostly give drops. But uh, personally, I prefer selective laser trabeculoplasty for suitable patients. Like uveitis, I can't do selective laser trabeculoplasty. It can cause more trouble. But with chronic simple glaucoma, in particular, if you do selective laser trabeculoplasty, you're doing many things at one go. That laser is basically the patient doesn't have to put drops in their eyes. But they all have to be seen regularly, like if they were taking drops, because pressure does creep up with time and you have to repeat the laser. If they're up to the drops, still the pressure needs to be brought to the safe level. When I say down, down, I mean a level that doesn't show any progression in the fields, any progression in the nerve fiber lengthening, any progression in the cupping. Basically, the day they came to you, they should remain that way for the rest of their life. Or if there's any change, it would be very slow slower than the life expectancy of that person. They need another 200 years to go to the level of losing their sight. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, and then the surgery comes last when, it, that's how I deal, so every surgeon, every person has a different way and all roads lead to Rome at the end of the day If you do the right thing that keeps the pressure safe and the patient seeing for the rest of the life. That's the truth, okay? So it depends really on what you do and what your expertise and your favor, what you favor in the treatment? Some of some of my patients, when nothing works, neither the laser doesn't work or the drops, they can't use the drops, or they have allergy to them, or whatever reason. Some of them are poor compliance as well. They especially people forgetful. You know, glaucoma as you grow older, it's more common in elderly. So, and. Some and and the laser doesn't work or they can't afford it. It's not covered. Either. Well, it is some places in the public system they do them, but mostly in I, I run only my own private practice. I'm not in the public system anymore. So, uh, patients coming to me need to be covered by insurance for that. So at the end of the day, the third option would be surgical, which is which is actually works very well as well. And if they have cataract there is a combination of cataract removal with an eye stent basically inject inserting a, a little bypass of the blocked angle, and that recovers make them co- basically well controlled for the rest of their lives. Yeah.
1: Can we talk, you mentioned it earlier, can we talk about diabetic retinopathy uh, which is something, a risk factor yeah. for people and with that's diabetes? and
0: that's another uh, uh, subject that I am actually part of in, the, in Ireland. Uh, I... And so, basically, diabetic retinopathy is important to be screened. And it's now in Ireland, we have a a good screening program for it. There are other countries, like Iceland was the first country to start the service, and they proven with the statistics that it has reduced blindness rating that is no longer a cause of blindness in Iceland. And there are studies in the UK that are, because they are both before Ireland in this uh, screening, Uh, that show there is a great improvement. Even me watching, seeing the patients that we're screening since, in Ireland it started since uh, 2013, I think, or 12, something around that near region. But let me talk about the diabetic retinopathy, what it causes and why screening is important. Uh, And we encourage patients with diabetes to have that, to avail of the screening. That's available for free in Mm -hmm. here in this country. So uh, if somebody has no diabetic eye disease, they still have to come once a year for, to be examined. Of course, pregnancy has a different pathway because pregnancy can make the diabetes more aggressive and cause more trouble. So they have a shorter uh, reviews before delivery. Uh, then if the patient shows uh, early diabetic eye disease with no changes let me let me describe what can happen first what's early what's pre-proliferative what's proliferative so early diabetic eye disease you see see little bleed little blood spots at the back of the eye but not too many and the patient will not progress to any serious type in in a in a few in a year or two so it's okay to bring them in another year that's just what's there okay then um the uh, pre-proliferative diabetic eye disease is too many bleeding areas and areas of possible new vessels, but they're not clear when examining them. They need to be referred to the treatment center to be assessed further. basically. And if there's anything wrong there, they can be treated. Also, blood sugar level needs to be controlled better and all that. So that helps as well. Then we have the proliferative eye disease which is new vessel formation from the veins can be in the nerve to the eye can be in the retina or in the iris itself if it happens in the iris that's called neovascular glaucoma and can cause high pressure with pain um but at the most this is not common this is i would say quite uncommon but the back of the eye a patient can come to you to the screening and then you find they have proliferative diabetic that they're not aware of it. And if they didn't come, they would go blind. There's no way that, that it will recover by itself. So these, these people would need a laser, peripheral laser in the retina. They may need injections, intravitreal injections of anti-VEGF, and uh, they do cover and the site is preserved, which is amazing to see. Also, macular changes from diabetes can happen without having to be proliferative, even in um, uh, background diabetic retinopathy, which is uh, the simple changes, but the macula can be um, swollen with fluids and exudates, which are deposits there. That requires injections because if if it's not treated, vision can go down, especially centrally, and they will lose sight centrally. So the screening of diabetes is vital, really, and diabetic retinopathy. And there's another thing which I actually love to say when somebody asks me about diabetic retinopathy screening. When doing that, we're not, yes, we're looking for diabetic changes, but we find age-related macular degeneration. Some people who have no idea they have them and they can be treated. We find glaucoma. Sometimes we find malignant melanomas, tumors at the back of the eye. If you don't treat them, they may really. It can. It can. They can lose their sight. It can many other complications. Um, so uh, hypertensive retinopathy, pressure pressure from, well, basically changes with the retina from high blood pressure. Uh, sometimes we find brain tumors through looking to the eye for diabetic retinopathy, swollen optic discs, and then we investigate them. So it is one of the best services that. I ever been part of really diabetic retinocytes screening.
1: You spoke about macular degeneration. I've heard this term before. It's it's normally associated with uh, the, the more elderly. Can you tell us exactly what it is and how it presents itself?
0: Yeah, age related macular degeneration is changes at the center of sight. So if somebody has age related macular degeneration, we'll not be able to see. While you're looking at me now, you can see my face. They won't be able to see my face. You'll see the surround, the rest of the room, but not the, the central part. And it can be dry or wet generation. And, of course, with the new technology now, with the OCT and uh, also with the um, uh, fluorescein fundus and geography and all that, we can re- differentiate between the dry and the wet Asia. Now, the dry there's no treatment for it because it's already fibrose. But the wet is when there are new vessels forming at the center of the eye, well, if you inject into the retina regularly, uh, into the vitreous bigger pattern uh, regular injections with anti-vascular uh, endothelial factor, it helps to regress these blood vessels. It's the same as done for diabetes, but this one is for age-related macular degeneration and vision improves in these patients and preserves their sight so uh, it is there is also a self monitoring i always tell my patients when they come for anything some of them come for dry eye but uh, they are the age of, of possible development of age-related macular degeneration i give them a chart it's called amsler chart they do self monitoring they on their weekly or bi-weekly at home themselves one eye at a time with reading glasses on and if they see anything different in the center, they have to report to me because it means something's happening there. And they wouldn't know it if they don't close one eye at a time. The same principle, the eye, the, our brain patch for these patches that we can't see. We can't see. So yeah, that's, I hope this answers your question.
1: It's something actually that my aunt suffered from. So I, I just wanted to get your 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 expertise, your knowledge on, on that. So I appreciate your giving me some of the detail. Can, can I ask you about UV light exposure? How important is it to wear sunglasses with adequate protection? I'm just interested because today in Dublin, it's beautiful and sunny. And uh, you very often see people walking around without sunglasses. And then sometimes people get sunglasses that are... Aren't the best of quality. How important is good quality protection for the eyes? To be
0: honest, there's no scientific evidence that it causes any. I mean, not wearing them can cause damage to the eye. The only thing is, especially in uh, bright sunlight um, and with blue irises, for example, the glare is too strong. The light, what we call it, light sensitivity is higher. So the glasses just make like a shield for that. But in the only time when you have a problem, if so you look at the sun directly, sun. yeah, I mean, that's a different story, or, or laser light or whatever, but not in general daytime.
1: That's interesting. Well, that, that explodes a myth for me then because I was always under the impression that uh, yeah, one had to uh, get the correct protection when it came to UV uh, light exposure uh, by by going out and buying yourself an, an expensive pair of sunglasses. Uh, something else, a lot of people listening to this uh, will uh, spend hours a day. Uh, focusing laser-like on their smartphones or on their computers, and they'll be up close and personal within inches uh, of their, their screens. Can you talk to us about whether there's any damage uh, that you can see or you're aware of that that creates uh, on the eyes of the individual themselves?
0: Well, there's no laser light coming from the screens, but the, there is something that uh, has been actually since COVID started, we noticed people coming more more people coming with dry eyes now uh, it's become a really common it used to be it used to be uh, a common problem in um, females around menopause okay because menopause causes is associated with dryness of the eyes that also is common in in pa- pa- People with uh, meibomian gland dysfunction, which is uh, reg- really the glands that produce the only secretion to, to keep the eye moist uh, are not functioning very well. Or patients with uh, autoimmune diseases can be associated like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, psoriasis, all these uh, acne rosacea as well can be associated with dry eyes. Uh, that's regardless whether being a female or a male, but, but it used to be more common in female females with uh, around menopause. Now we see the children with children. And it is directly linked to uh, continuous uh, looking at screens. But it's not actually the screens that cause that. This is the thing that's amazing. how It's we, when we are not necessarily even screens, reading elderly people. Some of them don't really enjoy looking at screens, but they are reading a lot. And that's what happens after COVID. People have more time to, read more to look at screens more we don't blink as much when we are reading and when we don't blink we don't redistribute the tear film and we get dry eyes so if we are predisposed to that say uh, somebody a a lady who is with menopausal she gets more dry eyes because she's doing more of it uh if you go outdoors in a windy place um you got you have the evaporation of tears is higher. If you are in an air-conditioned place, there is higher evaporation of tears. So these things are happening more lately because people are walking more, they're sitting reading more, they're looking at screens more, they are more in air-conditioned places. So you have no escape from dry eyes, And it's not that...
1: is is that the only issue that that you see with people who are exposed to using smartphones and computers an awful lot? Is it is it just dry eye, or um, I've heard also heard other people talk about uh, blue light exposure from these screens, and that not, that isn't good for you. Do you do you go along with that argument?
0: Uh, not to my experience, to be honest i I see a lot of patients. I never had any issues with patients having problems with blue light exposure. The main common problem is dry eye now, but it's treatable. Even dry eye is treatable, okay. but you tell them like, this is what the cause. So you put a drop of lubricants before you go at the screen, before you go in an air-conditioned place, <laughs> before you go outdoors <laughs> and also some, it's more advanced. So they need more work, basically. Some need plugs at the top, some need uh, in drops, different types, cyclosporine drops. And this, there are different ways, depending on the level of dryness, yeah. And
1: as far as your day-to-day work is concerned, would you deal with other or collaborate with other healthcare professionals, such as optometrists and neurologists, in order to provide comprehensive patient
0: care? Yes, and actually, I like this question. Before you, before I was to you, I was actually thinking I must mention this. So thanks for reminding me. I believe nobody. As there is a saying, though, no man is an island. What's the saying, no man?
1: No, that's it. No man
0: is an island. That's exactly it. Yeah, on itself, by itself. So if you don't collaborate with colleagues, you can't provide the best care for your patients. It's very important to collaborate at all levels. So, for example, I don't do cataract surgeries, but I have a network of colleagues where I can send them the cases to be done, okay? And I know they won't be looked after. They don't have to even... They, they know very well my examination is correct, I'm careful to do the right thing, and this is a case for treatment. So that's number one. For example, a case of multiple sclerosis coming to me with optic neuritis, okay? I diagnose it because patient comes with problem with the eye, but they have multiple sclerosis. So I I, I refer to uh, my colleague, neurologist colleague, and. They look after somebody coming with visual field effect and they have a brain tumor. And I discover it while examining them that visual field shows a typical brain tumor of this particular type, yeah. like twittery mass or something that presses on the chiasm and causes a specific visual field effect. A tumor mm-hmm. in the occipital cortex or in the parieto-occipital lobe can show one-sided you know, tumor or, or stroke actually can, or same visual field effect on one side. Things like that, uh, if, of course, we have to communicate with our colleagues, so they finish the rest of the work, and then they get monitored by the ophthalmologist, which is myself in, when patients are there coming to me, and this is the combined work together that has to be done, otherwise you're not providing the cell optometrist also is another thing. sometimes i need to offer a patient, especially people with persistent double vision following a lot, some stroke or some uh brain tumor that's caused paralysis of one of the nerves of, of the nerves that no uh helps moving or actually supplies the the muscles of the eye to move themselves directions and if it's long standing over a year, so there's nothing to be done and will to cover, they need prisons and that's done by an optometrist or orthoptist actually, and so on. So it says it is, and mentioning this also, I find the optometrists are amazing in their spotting the diagnosis. They're well trained in Ireland here and they do refer the cases when they need to be referred. And um, so it's really, um, it's important to have this collaboration
1: So generally speaking, then, for people listening in, uh, as I said at the outset, uh, eye care and eye health is not something that people prioritize until uh, they have a problem or a symptom. So what I I really want for people to do listening to this conversation with yourself is to arm themselves with knowledge and uh, and use time to their advantage, whereby if they're in their 20s, 30s or 40s and even if they don't have symptoms, should they really take their health in hand and go and go to an optometrist or go to a general practitioner who then may refer them to somebody like yourself?
0: Yes. See, a, a lot of times the optometrist is able to, to Say to them if it 's only a matter of having to wear glasses or that they don't need anything, okay, but if they spot a problem there, they would know when to refer they uh, and if somebody has a family history of of an eye disease, they really need to be seen they may have it if a diabetic patients as we mentioned earlier also in like i for example, let me give you this example contact cleanse wearers. I see a good number of patients of contact wearing contact lenses coming after going around, tried everything else Well, say they have pain in the eye following sleeping with the contact lens. Okay. They tried drops. They tried opticians. They tried GP. They, and then they come to the consultant of and they have an advanced abscess inside the eye or corneal also that needs to be treated. If they came earlier, it would have been sorted way earlier and by the time clear to you they would have recovered as well so things like that foreign body in the eye when i say i'm not talking intraocular i'm talking episodes people angle grinding or hammering something and some chip goes into there there a lot of people just well some do come i'm not saying everyone does some come straight away and so, some others try everything try washing the eye try rubbing it rubbing it just pushes it deeper and for me to take that foreign body after three, four days, is not an easy job like if they came to me same day and I worry about them having a scar. But then, like, usually it's fine, especially if it's not central. But it's not fine to leave it that long because it takes longer to go. It won't come off by itself. It has to be removed. Uh, so things like that. I mean, there is a lot of times I get refers from the opticians with these cases. They just send it because they know that this has to be done by a nice patient. Uh, keeping things on the long finger is not the right thing for us. You can't wait for things to recover. And no harm in checking. If there is no, I always say, if there's nothing, it's a reassuring thing. If there's something, it's going to be dealt with and you will be better rather than leaving it too long and too late. And if the glaucoma, for example, is one of the worst examples, really.
1: Can we talk about nutrition and uh, diet and supplements for eye health? Do you have any particular advice here?
0: See, for I, I think the Mediterranean diet is amazing. Uh, not because I am coming from Mediterranean country <laughs> originally, but I, I, it is good. It's, uh, it's got a lot of carotenoids and green leafy vegetables and all that. And in fact, you know the uh, the food, su- the diet supplements that are prescribed by us to. It's it's actually capsules prescribed to protect from age-related macular degeneration. They're really, I keep saying, it's like taking a ball of lattice and a kilo of carrots a day. Like it's carotenoids and all that. It helps protect the eyes from the oxidative effect of the light over the years, basically. And prevent, I wouldn't say prevent, but help delay the development of age-related macular degeneration. So it is a handful of That's for the eyes, of course, the skin and for all the bodies actually healthier to use, to eat healthy diet anyway.
1: Is it inevitable, like every other part of the human body, that your eye health will deteriorate over time, regardless of how well you look after your eyes? No, 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 No.
0: actually no. And this is actually another good question. There is one thing, for example, the cataracts may happen as we grow older, but that's, I wouldn't call it deterioration because once you take it out, it's reversible. You bring the site back. So I wouldn't say deterioration, but you may call it temporary change that can be recovered by taking. The one thing that can be age-related and it's inevitable is, A, is the age-related macular degeneration. Um oh, there are lots of studies now that work on delaying it further preventing it but it is one thing that you can't really if it happens you can't do anything about it but the rest like i, I sometimes patient with glaucoma comes later and say yeah it's age related no yes it is age related in terms of it comes later in life but it's not age related to leave it till you go blind to come to me you have to be seen earlier to prevent that happening so uh, some patients come to me aged 90 and they are amazing, their sight is 6'5 and I think I wish I'd be like them when I am their age. <laughs> so this is it, like it's uh, not really. Except you are lucky to have some family problem that is affected, that does affect you. Basically. Yeah.
1: Time has almost run out on us. Uh, I've kept you far, far longer than I said I would. What prompted you to or what drew you to become an ophthalmologist in the first place why that particular field of medicine
0: nice question and my answer would be a bit I don't know if you'll expect it let me tell you I always loved to be a doctor since I was four years old because my father had friends who were doctors and I admired so that was something not related to anything but when I went to medicine I enjoyed everything in it and initially I loved to do surgery I wanted to do gyne or general surgery but a colleague my one of my professors he's a he's a general surgeon he said to me you know what let me tell you an advice I wish I had it when he was an excellent surgeon but he said I wish I had it when I was your age and see so I said if you want to have a family life you better take something that you can control ophthalmology would be a good one ENT something like that and I said he said you won't be called for emergency in the middle of the night for that <laughs> So I thought, let me try it when I went in the, my internship. And I loved it. it felt really like, um, I don't know, but there is something in it that I would say now just to not to be, uh, keep you long. Is First of all, uh, it felt at the time that it felt like fine embroidery with no trace. But that's, that's something else. The second thing that made me carry on even now, I don't know if I will ever retire because I love what I'm doing. Is the pleasure I get from seeing the effect of the service I provide, keeping the sight of the patients, restoring their sight, and the happiness on the big smile on their face is the reward that can't be. It's priceless reward, really a priceless reward. And that's what makes me love every day I do my job. And I look forward to the next day when I want to go to, to do it the next day. So, here you go. I hope I
1: answered the question. Well, you you certainly did. And I have to say, I I, I think many people would be envious of your job satisfaction and the difference that you make to people's lives to be able to maintain or even restore somebody's eyesight that's pretty huge. It really, really is. And it just goes to show the importance of the job that you do. But the fact that you continue to love to do it, I think, is 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 terrific because so many people are occupied in just going through the motions of doing jobs that they don't enjoy doing. So um, I hope listening to you uh, that uh, they find some inspiration in some of your words today.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me today. It's a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you so much for your contribution and for giving me some of your uh, valuable and precious time today on the Happy Habit podcast. Uh, Dr. Hamroos, thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit podcast. If you're enjoying listening to the series, please like, subscribe, share. And if you have the time, please do leave the podcast a positive review. It really helps out. Until next time, stay happy.